0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 32 of the Best Thing podcast. You know, in life, there's a first time for everything. And on this podcast episode, it's the first time I cried. During an interview, this conversation that I have with Ellen McGirt, you're going to learn more about her in a moment, was so powerful, was so transformational, was so poignant, was so compelling. I can keep going on and on and on that it made me cry. Tears were shed and that is a good thing. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation and what she shares about being a door to door salesman as a 11 year old girl. Get ready for this And hey, before we dig into the episode, I wanted to let you know about the Stop Living on Autopilot free mini course I have available right now. If right now you're really rethinking everything as you gear up for the fall, you you know you don't want to go through the motions anymore. You know you don't want to live on autopilot. You want to live with purpose. You want to live with conviction. You want to live with joy and happiness, all that fun stuff. I invite you to take a first step today by swiping up, going to the show notes, and signing up for the Stop Living on Autopilot free mini course. The feedback I'm getting from this already is amazing. There are three powerful lessons that will cost you absolutely nothing but your time. So I think you're really going to enjoy that. So swipe up. Uh, Okay, without further ado, I I want you to hear me cry. And Ellen's going to cry as well. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. So here's episode 32 of the best thing
1: welcome to the best thing podcast where we talk to thought leaders creatives authors and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected welcome your host antonio nevs
0: hey everyone welcome to the best thing podcast where i talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm an author, coach, and speaker. And each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I first heard about during one of my trips to South Dakota, of all places and the more i read her work and what she shares on social media i just knew i wanted to get her on my podcast ella mcgur is an award-winning journalist and covers race culture and leadership in a twice weekly newsletter for fortune called race ahead in addition to race ahead she also writes long form magazine features and she is the co-chair of fortune's ceo initiative now, Ellen's reporting over the years has taken her inside the C-suite of big-time places like Facebook, Nike, Twitter, Intel, Xerox, and Cisco. She's also been on the campaign trail with former President Barack Obama, and she's spent some time heading across Africa with the head of U2 to study <laughs> breakthrough philanthropy. In the past, Ellen has written for Time, Money, and Fast Company, where she wrote or contributed to more than 20. Let me say that again, 20 cover stories. Ellen, welcome to The Best Thing.
1: The, the best thing that's happened to me in a long time was getting to talk with you. So thank you for having me.
0: Oh, people can't see me, but I'm blushing over okay. here right okay. now. I want to start with this question because obviously you're a journalist, you're a professional storyteller. And uh, as I look at your amazing credentials and background and research you and read, read read so many of your stories, I always think back to when I was in grad school for journalism and I would pitch stories and I would pitch the story. And after I would pitched the story, what I thought was a pitch, the news director or professor or somebody would say <laughs> back to me, OK, but what's the story? And I thought I had pitched the story, but evidently I didn't. So I'm curious for you over the years, what are those things that have grabbed your attention or, or what things do grab your attention to want to tell that story?
1: You know, that is such a great question, and I think it's changed over the years. And to your point, though, so much of what it takes to get a story um, published in whatever format is to make sure you understand what the audience is and what the person you're pitching to actually needs. And so sometimes you have to game the system a little bit and speak to their strengths as an editor and make sure that you're including some really specific points that will really speak to the experience of the audience you're trying to reach. But I'll tell you the magical part of it is, and I, I sort of think about it as collecting pearls. You know, as you walk through the world, and I know that you travel a lot, you speak a lot, you're a big thinker, and you're a very curious person, every now and then something like just hits you. And you're curious about it. And then you find yourself as you're walking, you're doing something else that comes back to you. And I like to think of those moments as pearls that I put in a box in my heart and in my mind, and I keep. Mm. And Usually what happens is they come back as I become aware of an event or I'm curious about something, and I realize I'm sensing a pattern, either a pattern of something that I'm curious about or that I'm noticing in the world. And whenever I pitch a story, I try to bring in many of these pearls I've collected as I possibly can, an unusual event, an unusual um, subject matter expert, a, a data point, an interesting place that I've been. And Take it friend. so it gives you a bunch of different lenses, but it also just peppers your idea with something that nobody has seen or heard before. Yeah. And also just gives me some place to put the to put my curiosities where I know that they're going to be safe. That's the, the other thing is I'm, you know, I tend to hoard ideas. Like I've like you always feel like you're never going to have a good idea again. This way you know that like they're, they're just sitting there waiting for you to pay attention to them again. You don't have to worry about that.
0: Yeah, as you talk about those pearls, those things that grab your attention, those themes you see over and over again, I'm curious for you. I mean, and I'm a little biased as I ask this question because I'm thinking about the stories I want to cover over the years. And I would always go in thinking the story is X or the story is Y or the story is Z. And curiosity plays a role in this. But how much are you always surprised when you go in to cover something or in the past that what you think is the story isn't the story? Is that typically all, all the time?
1: You know, quite often. But if you are a person that has a beat, then it makes it a little bit easier to have a sense of like what the context is. But when I was at Fast Company, we were really, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were covering in tech was still pretty new. Part of my earliest job was trying to explain to people what social media was, like what a what a profile was. I mean, that's how basic it was. And So I would ask people like Facebook or, you know, like Cisco that was working, trying to figure out how they were going to navigate this new normal how about you just let me in and let me just meet some key people and I'll work closely with you, but uh, you know, maybe some themes and some ideas will emerge. It's like, literally like, can I just come and wander around your company? And you'd be surprised as long as you promise to be, you know, open and transparent and have come in with integrity, people will let you wander around and find the story because it's actually to their advantage for you to do that. Now, Facebook is a very different company now. You know, they don't need people to, Explain themselves to the world. They would prefer people don't explain what they're doing to the world. I mean, they're just a huge engine. It's it's at the time when I was first meeting them and meeting Mark, they had six million users. Mm. Like they were just, it was a baby, baby platform, and they were looking to establish themselves. So letting me wander around was ended up being a a good thing. But I'm not 100 sure it's a good thing for the world, but. I was able to have a very interesting experience of what it was like to be them at that moment in 2007.
0: Yeah, a lot of people right now are questioning whether or not Facebook is, is good or bad for the world. That's a whole other conversation. I really do I really do like the theme of wandering around. I think that can uh, assist and benefit all of us in many forms uh, in life. Of course, over the course of your career, you've interviewed some of the biggest names in business, CEOs, leaders beyond former presidents, et cetera. I'm curious, what has been your approach to build trust with these folks when you go and they don't know you? Maybe they're a little bit hesitant. What story is this journalist trying to tell? Is it going to make me look good? The company look bad, et cetera. What have you done to earn these to to get these people to share more maybe than they normally would?
1: You know, that is such a great question. And long form is perfect for that because it gives you time to prepare. And it really is the preparation. My favorite story that I'd ever written That I thought was like the most successful from start to finish was a profile I did of Mark Parker when he was CEO of Nike. And I really went all in and I I was able to demonstrate that I was a person you could trust because not only did I read every single um, annual report that that company had published, I went back to the origins of the from the Oregon Trail for where, you know, where Bill Bowerman, you know, his predecessors had been and just sort of the spirit of him and Oregon and, and what he was making when he was, you know, using a waffle iron to 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 make a better shoe. You know, and what and so I had in front of me, I had all of this information, all of these stories I called historians of Oregon. I knew every single patent. I remembered patents that Mark Parker didn't remember he had. Wow. And I had, I had a list of them in front of me. Like it was really a nerdy deep dive. Um, and he's also an art collector. And I had an experience. I had a, my first career was in galleries and museums. So I came in with like real curiosity about how he collected and his eye and a real understanding of his journey and who he was. And then the conversations became easier. Like the res- I I guess it's a question of respect. Like I came in with a big sense of, you know, he was a real person. He was doing real things. And I could understand this company from an outsider. It's a bold thing to say, but I was going to try. And I think, you know, you put that on my my tombstone. It's like, here lies Ellen. She really tried. Like, if you can demonstrate to a powerful person that you're really trying to understand, they will meet you halfway. I promise.
0: Here lies Ellen. I really tried. I like that. <laughs> but that's cool also because I was reading and learning about you. I saw that these things that come to help us that we, we don't know they're going to help at some point in our career that you started in an art gallery when you were in college. So those, so those things that come back to help us many years later and the preparation is, is so key. Um, and this is whether you're going to do it, be a journalist and interview a, a company or an individual, or if you're even, for those listeners out there who always reach out to, you reach out to different individuals and you want to do informational meetings. I just invite folks to do that research and make so much difference when you finally get across from that man or woman, it's going to get them to share more, it's going to build trust, etc. Uh, let's Let's move forward a little bit and talk about race ahead where you write about race you write about culture um i'm curious of course race culture there's so much going on now it's always been going on it's just unfortunately something that we haven't been willing to talk about on a national scale the way we are right now thankfully as i look at and i I read that newsletter you talk again talk about serious very important stuff i was thinking about that quote-unquote beat that you have that you write does doing this work now does it empower you or do you find sometimes covering these topics that are really really charged does it exhaust you after you after you finish a newsletter like does it again empower or are you like whoa yeah. dude, this is getting me
1: Yeah that's a really important that's a really important question because I've been grappling with that I'm an introvert anyway so everything exhausts me <laughs> mm-hmm
0: but i <laughs> that's, that's going to be the title of this episode everything exhausts me
1: everything exhausts me and i need a break from you it's like that is sort of where i am every minute of every day anyway but until the pandemic saved me from myself this was a daily column and i did a, almost all of it alone i there isn't a dedicated staff to the race beat i established it alone i'm very lucky to have corporate sponsors which as you know you know you have a little real estate that's profitable that's a profit center you know you 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 have a lot of You've got some staying power, but it wasn't the language that business is fluent in, you know, equity and inclusion and and some of the things that people are really worried about inside and outside of their, of their companies. So I, I felt like I was one chapter ahead of the class for years. And I, I, I had made, by the time uh, Christmas came along last Christmas, I had made a pact that I was going to try to make it to May 15th, which would be my four year anniversary with this column. And, but I was like on fumes, you know, I, I from police shootings back then, the campaign, the rise in hate speech, the rise in anti-Semitism and the sense that there was a lot of talk about diversity, and inclusion in corporate life, but not a lot was happening. We were still having the business case for diversity conversation, which is so not helpful and so insulting. Um and then I was just going to die at my desk. Like I had no plan. I don't even have the energy to think about what I wanted to do next or where I thought I could leverage this. And then the pandemic hit, which changed our business dramatically, everybody's business. And I started to have different kinds of conversations and report in different way around COVID. And then the other pandemic comes up and systemic racism. Mm. And suddenly everyone's on the race beat. And uh, <laughs> I was not. I felt less alone. I'm also based in St. Louis. And um, suddenly I could see my colleagues because we were on these meetings all um, together. I only saw them at conferences a couple of times a year. My sense of isolation changed and I i have, you know, survivor's guilt around it. Like my professional life got better and I felt less lonely and frightened because this terrible thing was happening in the world, you know, and we were all suffering. But on one part of my life, I just felt plugged in in a new way. I'd like to get a little more unplugged, like we're on Zoom meetings constantly now, mm. But it was dramatic. It was I I could feel my mental health improving. Um, and I also felt a fellowship with people who were struggling to understand. And it was about two weeks into the, the George Floyd protests when I began to trust that this was real, like this wasn't just a cycle. I, I am I have been shocked and amazed at the kinds of investments very senior leaders have been making in. Understanding and listening to their Black and Brown employees and their well-being at work, um, in system systematic changes in the work in the workplace, and investing in things outside like Black Lives Matter and Urban League activities and you know real real things, um, uh, Color of Change, the uh, the Legal Defense Fund, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, like funding things that really can make a difference. And I have been completely shocked and uplifted by all of that, but it is, uh, I'm settling into the new normal of doing the work. And I am anticipating that we're going to be walking into a period of time when newly energized allies are going to be struggling, you know, because this is hard and they're new and it's very, very painful. And the self-reflection that's going to be necessary is going to be tiring. So I'm preparing for that. I'm not sure what that's going to look like.
0: Well, I appreciate you for sharing all of that. And I like how you frame it as the other pandemic. And it is really invigorating to see the kind of things that companies like Netflix are doing. Some Some big changes are definitely happening. One of the reasons why I asked you that question is the work is it empowering? By the way, even before I ask that question, I'm starting to see some lazy journalists because they're going through all your archives right now, trying to figure <laughs> out what what story what, what stories to tell as they're trying to play catch-up because <laughs> you are a chapter head. There's some lazy journalism going on. Uh, anyhow, the reason why I asked that question about are you empowered or are you finding this draining and exhausting is because. I was curious what it's like for you with the newsletter when as a journalist, typically very rarely do we see the word I first person in our writing. And if I go to any of your, your, your uh, cover um, magazine cover type articles or anything, I'm not going to see the word I. I'll see your name in the byline. So I'm just curious what it means when all of a sudden you're writing and I see that word I in that newsletter that 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 right there takes on a different energy.
1: I know I was really ex- I'm really exposed, and I do think about that quite a bit, and partly because we have a growing cohort of newsletters, and at the time, I was looking for a way to defend the topic, defend the spirit of talking about race and not make it into um, a newsletter that's talking about the healthcare industry or AI or tech, like really have a different voice. So I want to distinguish it from there. And then I realized you know I'm talking to to people who care about this. They literally have skin in the game they're not trying to pick a good stock. They're not trying to, you know, they're, they're trying to make the world better. So to encourage the kind of candor that I think that requires, especially when I was writing daily, a lot of it would be, you know, Q and A's, or here's a piece of research you should think about, or here's a person I I um, I interviewed or a place I went. I tried to incorporate a personal essay when I thought it was appropriate, when I thought it made sense. And like, I made a mistake. One of my most popular ones was about a time when I went to Haiti, it was, this was recent and I was, um, I made a terrible cultural mistake where you know, it was post post cholera. And um, I had this wonderful experience. I was doing this deep dive into water systems and I was hosted by amazing people there when I was studying um, breakthrough, I was studying uh, um, extreme poverty and, and interesting solutions. And as I was leaving, you really bond with people and, you know, communities and families and parents and kids. And I was leaving on the back of a pickup truck. I, I blew a kiss as I was I'm with not- all these kids. And not even thinking. Um, And then I realized it's like, they're just staring at me. You can't see me, but I'm like, they're just holding up their hands like in the air. It's like, my God, what a fool. I just encouraged, you know, kids who had just, communities who had just gone through a a cholera pandemic to touch, put their, bring their hands to their mouth.
0: It was Mm. such a stupid
1: mistake. And so I, and that was a perfect reason to use an eye to say, you know, I made this terrible mistake. And my, my, um, my pitch was, I see you, you know, I see you arrogant, you know, non-mask wearers. I see you Chads and Karens running around asking, talking about your personal freedom. I see that well, you're hurting my community. I see that you're hurting dispropor- disproportionately communities of color, low-income people, people who are essential workers but are actually just hostages. I see you, and I'm blowing you a kiss. You know, and that was like, that was like, I thought that was a good reason to use the word I.
0: I love that. And I want to get to this question of the best thing in just a moment. But before I do, you know, using the word I, again, as a journalist myself, one of the biggest challenges I had after I transitioned out of journalism was frankly, being willing to have an opinion, actually being willing to stand for something because for so long, and the, you know I guess the funny thing is you can always have an opinion without using the word I, and you can have some fun with writing or broadcast to get your point across without directly doing it. You can have fun if you're moderating a panel um, right. without directly saying something. But was it challenging for you as you started to use the I to, to have an opinion and stand for something primarily because of your journalistic background?
1: Well, also, just because I, I don't want to be vulnerable. And boy, you really ask good questions. I was so worried about this very topic that I reached out to several journalists I care about, including one, uh, a wonderful woman named Rebecca Carroll, who should have on the show. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. She's a podcast and a book. She's a million things. And her advice was that's a smart thing for you to be worried about. Don't have an opinion before you have an opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's important because you know you're rushing to get into the news cycle. We all want those clicks. We all want, you know, that SEO in our favor. But if you don't have an opinion yet, do, and you don't have a take that you think is really additive to your audience, you don't you don't don't have it. It's it doesn't matter. And um, you know, you struggle with that. I gave me permission to not um um Rush into something just because something happened before I was ready to to speak on it, and it also gave me permission to not have an opinion about something until I was really ready. I do not plan to have an opinion about Kanye's bipolar disease. Mm. I do not plan to have an opinion about that. I don't think I need to have anything I can add there. But I did have an opinion about um, losing Kobe. But it took mm. like nine hours. You know, he fall mm. this man falls from the sky, and he means so many different things painful and 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 beautiful to so many people, what does it take to parse that? So I took the time to to do that. So I chose that that's how I choose.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that willingness to to take the time, that reminder that we can take a deep breath and we don't have to have an opinion until we actually have an opinion. So thank you. That that's actually helpful for me personally. We could talk about this stuff all day long because I'm I'm mm-hmm. actually loving it. But let's get to this question of the best thing. I, I love to talk to people <laughs> about the question of The best thing or one of the best things to happen to them that isn't those traditional markers of success, getting married, having kids, graduating from college, those things that would always show up on the resume, but has still had a profound effect on who they are today. So for you, Ellen, what's one of those things that has been a a quote unquote best thing?
1: So I wanted. to, um, this is such an interesting question, God. I just love being inside your beautiful mind on mm-hmm. all of these things. But this is, I want to tell you the story of how I became um, an 11-year-old Avon lady.
0: Let's, <laughs> let's, it really, it really let's do it.
1: <laughs> so I got the idea from a note card back when we had those pinned on a corkboard in the laundry room of our apartment, my apartment building, where I live with my mom. There was a woman named Renee, who was actually my mom's. Avon lady um, was moving and she wanted to pass on her business sort of like it was a paper route kind of thing. And she had a real route. She had regular customers, a whole supply of Avon things, samples. And you and know, freshers. I'm, I'm, gonna,
0: I'm gonna interrupt you for a quick moment, a quick moment for those people who have no idea what Avon is. Oh, can you oh give my them gosh. Some com- yes.
1: Skincare? Avon, Avon was, is, is, still is, I'm sure a, a, a makeup and skincare beauty company that in the, but the time when I was talking about this in the 70s, 60s, probably long before that was sold primarily through women, um, individual women, salespeople who work from their home. So it was it wasn't multilevel, but it, it was it was really like you had a representative and she lived near you and she had a root. And it was enabling women to have their own businesses and still have their families and sell all this great stuff. But they okay, were women great. who wore makeup. Right. Not kids. That's OK, big, got it. That's a big okay.
0: Thing. And your right. neighbor or your, or your mother's Avon lady she was leaving
1: she she was leaving and um she had all the stuff all the samples and stuff and forms and there was like sales books and stuff so all I had to do all we had to do is like sign a form and uh and let the company know that they were switching to me. I sort of I I looking back I nominally ran this idea by my mom. Like I just sort of like barely and so to put things into further context, right, this was the 70s. It was not a big time for the beauty business. There's no influencers at all. There's no online Um, women's magazines were made of paper and they were expensive. And like if you needed tips, they were were sort of hard to find. And, you know, if you really wanted a good deep dive into beauty culture, you were going to have to work for it. Like go to the bookstore, really like make an effort. Um, And most stuff was in the mall. They didn't really have much stuff in in the grocery stores. Like you can buy amazing cosmetics just at the Piggly Wiggly now. You don't you couldn't do it back then. Um and particularly for Avon though, and if you liked these products, you were probably on a budget, you know, and it was convenient. The the convenience of having her there, all the sort of was built right in. Um and if you were on a budget, your Avon lady was like important to you because she had samples and you she she had tips and you needed them, right? And You were a good customer. You needed her discount. So like your Avon lady was actually an important person to you. Um, And I didn't think about any of that at all um, because I was a child. Like I literally had to climb onto like the washing machine to get the thing down. You know, I know that 11 year olds today are influencers and they're like running climate change organizations or like, <laughs> like Kardashian adjacent kind mm-hmm. of people. But like when I wasn't selling Avon or doing my homework, I was playing in a like in a treehouse in the woods behind my house. Like I was an actual child, but we needed the money, Antonio. And this is like this was like the basis of my thought process. Um, this apartment complex was. um in a kind of a low rent, affordable working class side of a pretty little shoreline town called Brantford. Um, and this particular place, I will say, is um, was no one's forever home, if you know what I mean. There were um, plenty of people there because they just had their first jobs or they were starting their families and like on their way up. But there was a whole bunch of us that were there that because our life had knocked us back a pig or two or, or six. And that was my mom and me. Like we were really sort of hanging on by a thread. Um, a couple of years before we had left our home in Harlem where I grew up for before I continued growing up in Connecticut um, in the middle of the night, you know, I'd been 10 years of just living in a really violent home. Um, and finally, we found a way to escape Uh, We lived with my grandmother for a while, but basically we were just adrift, like just Mm. unmoored. And it's the kind of homeless that most people experience where you just don't, you don't have a a permanent address. You're knocking around. It's really hard and scary um, for, for more than a year. And then she got an office job and then she got a promotion and we found a little apartment. And next thing you know, we had an Avon lady. And next thing you know, I was an Avon lady, but the other twist, which I think is really more to I guess you know now that I'm talking about you with all of this, it also sort of relates i was my mom is white, um mm-hmm. but I was the only black person in the in this complex, like we had gone mm-hmm. from this rich cultural nature um uh, neighborhood to this sort of all white struggling uh community, and there were plenty of people um who I knew suddenly, you know I came from woke hundred and you know twenty fifth mm-hmm. street Would use the N word sort of in casual conversations. There were plenty of people who would use the word Jew as a verb, you know, that's, and everyone seemed weirdly attached to Leonard Skinner. Like it's like Connecticut, Mm. you know, just Mm. shut up and eat your clam chowder. The South's (laughs) not rising again over here. Mm. Um, And so plenty of my customers were like struggling with whatever they were struggling with. And some of Mm. them needed just, they just wanted their monthly order of Skin So Soft. But there were lots of women who knew, understood what I was trying to do. Like they knew that we were vulnerable, and they knew that I was this like weird little ambitious kid who knew nothing about um, makeup. But I would read the pamphlets, and I would go to their houses, and I would try to do demonstrations. Like I really tried it, and they really listened to me. Um, and I, I, I actually had a red wagon that I borrowed from a kid, and I used to bring the samples, and I would sure. bring their orders to them. And I, I would tell you too that many of my customers looked like, or in some cases, were the mothers of the kinds of kids who made having a black kids table in the lunchroom necessary, you know, like they were part of that thing that made life t- tough for me. But, you know, for two years though, I made like actual money. I could finally afford new clothes and school supplies. And, um, you know, what they don't ever tell you in the what to expect when you're suddenly homeless guide is that um, the worst part is not being able to buy people presents and just like being normal getting all choked up just even mm-hmm. thinking about it. You know so it was like an incredibly happy time at in, in relationship and a connection to people who ordinarily felt would felt dangerous to me and whose lives and orientation um, felt opposite of mine you know and yet they saved me. And although I'd yeah. like to think that I returned the favor because he girl knows how to pass on a discount, let me just tell mm-hmm. you
0: that um,
1: it helped me understand. It helped me, especially when I'm rested, mm-hmm. find the place I need to go to feel empathy and give people who are complicated context. You know, and I think the world that we in our, in, in our in the world that we're in now is makes that really complicated. People feel free to say very, very ugly things, and um they use they use Trump and those and the president and and the rhetoric as a proxy for some very scary feelings and some very ugly feelings. so I struggle with that to this day, but the degree to which I'm able to hold the humanity of people who may not be holding the humanity of me in return is because I was a an eleven year old Avon lady. I'm convinced of it
0: Wow. Well, first, I want to acknowledge you and appreciate you for being willing to share all of that. And when I've, I don't know you, we, we, I don't personally know you deeply, but I feel like I know you deeply. And as you were sharing that story, one of the reasons why I know you deeply is because, as you described, leaving in the middle of the night many times, living with your grandmother, that over the course of my life at times was my experience as well. And if there's a reason why I can truly connect with people, why I have that empathy? Why I probably became a journalist, a storyteller? Why I can talk to any damn body? That has a lot to do with this. Now you are getting me emotional, yeah. as well. So I appreciate you for for sharing that because I frankly forgot about leaving in the middle of the night and those times with grandma, not always having an address, etc. Um, I am thinking about that eleven year old you through my tears right now. Same. Which I'll which I'll, which I'll gladly acknowledge out loud. Um, Think about that eleven year old you, and, and I am just curious, what allowed that eleven year old girl? Yes, there was necessity. Uh, I hear you say there was necessity, but what allowed you to have that—that that courage? I can't imagine walking around a neighborhood that you just described, where folks didn't look like you, where people didn't say the necessarily kindest things at school, etc. But that allowed you to grab that red wagon, walk down the street, and knock on the door, and do your sales pitch, introduce yourself, go into their home. Like, what allowed for that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I look, looking back, I or just thinking about what we just talked about it. I made it sound a little, I mean, I did all those things and I probably had more anxiety about just talking to an adult than I I'm probably accurately remembering. Cause you know, adults are terrifying. They still are, <laughs> but um, th- I, there's just always been, I think part of it too. I was very well, I, I, I went to school at PS 75, 96th street and West end Avenue, very well invested in by my peers and my Friends, parents, and teachers—just an amazing melting pot experience growing up in New York City. That's a big part of it, but I think there's just something that is still sort of like naively optimistic in me. It's like the the part that just looks that's like I can do that. Like I'm po- I'm pointing to like this invisible chalkboard uh, corkboard. Like I well, she, right, which is like borderline mm-hmm. borders on arrogance, right? Well, if, mm-hmm. Renee, I, if Renee can do it, I can do it. Like how hard is this? You just write down what people want. And um, and I followed the orders, and I was excited about the idea of, of growing something. And I guess there was a part of me that was also kind of resigned to the fact that in 1970 whatever, people still said stupid things, and
0: sure.
1: there was just nothing I could do about that. But there was plenty of things I could do to just live my life. I'm giving them. I'm giving this a a big adult talk. But I don't really. I can't really access my thought process with the lang- with the words I had at the time. Except like this seems like a good idea, and I was like kind of a hustler. I had a I had a busy babysitting business, and if I couldn't do the babysitting myself, I would um, plug in one of my friends and charge them a dollar. Like I was really trying something.
0: <laughs> well, the, the situation you described. I mean, for an upbringing like that, you know, for a lot of kids. And I know this firsthand. You have to figure things out pretty pretty quick on your own. If you don't have lunch money that day, you'll figure out a way to eat because you're not going to go hungry. And that was my experience. You mentioned the word empathy earlier and how important that is. And you also said, and I hope I get this quote right, You know, give people who are complicated context. I think that's just beautiful in itself in this day and age, like you said, where we're so quick to dismiss someone, to call someone crazy. I always have to remind myself that even if I disagree with someone, it doesn't mean that I can't learn from them. In an interview that I saw a video uh, online of you, you said something about um, something you recommend to CEOs, and that is being willing to have something that you called, quote unquote, empathy moments. Yeah. Yeah. As you walk around and talk to people, could you talk a little bit about maybe even the empathy you had as a child <laughs> that you learned, but also what that and what empathy moments are today?
1: You know, and I try to generate them in myself. It's such a I don't I don't remember I don't remember saying that, but it sounds like um something I would say. I'm also very interested in the concept of moral imagination. You're understanding that people are fully realized moral beings with agency and not just assets to be deployed you know, for yeah. in philanthropy, but now also in business, it makes stakeholder capitalism a really different conversation than shareholder capitalism also means that you're evaluating projects and ideas for the kinds of harm that they can do, as opposed to just, you know, full speed ahead, let's drive innovation kind of thing. So the, the empathy moments are, are, are kind of like the pearls of curiosity is sort of figuring out a way that you can remind yourself that you're in front of somebody who's real and, one of the ways I tried to do it, I, long before the MAGA stuff started happening, we had the tea party to deal with. And long before that, we had other things to deal with. But I remember seeing a picture of a woman um, who was so angry and she had an angry sign and, you know, whatever it was. She was angry, but I was always about race or immigration or just something. And uh, she had a straw hat on with Lipton tea bags hanging from it. And if I was going to create, I don't want to profile anybody, but if I was going to create a backstory for her that would allow me to. Imagine her world, you know. I she she didn't look healthy. She didn't look like she had access to um, the dental care that she needed. I'm imagining. I'm imagining all these things about her life. I'm imagining that she's taking care of a grandchild that she didn't expect to take care of, and I'm imagining that she's worried about her her wage job. Like these were the kinds of things that I could infer from the things that she was she'd been talking about. She was yelling, and and I I actually printed out a picture and I put it near my desk and. Like my, my job is to understand the humanity of this person, even though she's not able to understand mine because um, it helps me exist in the world. Like it for mm-hmm. no other reason, it just helps me exist. But if I was ever going to be in a position to craft a policy or a work process or a product that would include her, I would need to have at my fingertips an ability to to generate some some empathy or some curiosity about her to be able to do that effectively. And I think that's the thing that is so important. And I and I find, I can only imagine, I'm, obviously, I've never been in charge of anything, although I'm dying to be. <laughs> but the, the idea of having to do that at scale is such a terrifying idea, if you really look at it, you know, every decision affects people and families and how they can um, manage their futures. And I think The the twin pandemics of systemic racism and coronaviruses is is forcing very senior people to get on a rapid cycle of empathy and understanding and to to be able to stand up. It's happening very quickly and it's happening to everybody at once. And you can really see the people who are rising up and the people who are just falling by the wayside.
0: Yeah, that's the empathy you're talking about in the video as you're recommending that these leaders go to those folks in the companies that are underrepresented population wise to have those conversations to learn, to have um, just, just more, I guess you said, empathy. Um, just a couple more questions as we get ready to, to, to wind down. This is this has been amazing. I'm still, I want to, I'm curious what the takeaway, like the Avon experience for you is that 11 year old girl. I'm just curious what it provided you with. Would you say it provided you with freedom in a way? Did it provide you with purpose? But the, the word that's coming up for me now, or did it provide you with connection? Yeah. I think about what it provided you with.
1: Yeah. I think, I think it, it, it get, definitely helped me understand the power of a network. Although I wouldn't have said it that quite that way, mm-hmm. but I think the biggest thing it gave me was confidence that I could figure mm-hmm. something out. You know, I could figure something out that was sophisticated. And, um, and it also gave me an opportunity to contribute. You know, our little family was just, just my mom and me. Um, my dad continued to be problematic. My mom has, I have an older sister from my mom's first marriage and she had a very different economic context in her life. She was very; she just lived a different life than I did in a really profound way. So it helped me. I mean, I mean, you just like black history. Take care of your mother, and I'm like just it's like genetic maybe, but I just had this after so much violence and so much terror and um, just so much not knowing how we were going to live like this anymore. Just to be it's I guess you're right, I guess it's freedom. It gave me a sense that I could figure it out um even if I was making it up as I went along and um and that people people were kind to me, Antonio, like I was a child right? <laughs> with makeup tips, and people were kind to me, and uh that was really affirming.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's the last thing we'll end on is you said they were kind to you. You're eleven year old, eleven years old, maybe in an area where you didn't expect people to be kind. But you said earlier that they knew we were vulnerable. Yeah. And talk about people in your neighborhood. And my, my, my hunch is the eyes that you see this world in, whether you're in Haiti, whether you're doing work for race ahead, whether you're covering a company, your eyes can probably see a lot of vulnerabilities in things that others just cannot see. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I guess that's, um, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful, um, skill to have developed, you know, that kind of, and it works, it works as a journalist, you know, because you get to see the stories that maybe that somebody else doesn't see, follow the curiosity, um, have conversations other people aren't having. And just, if you get a couple of moments of those into any stories, it just, it feels like something different for a reader and, it opens a window into somebody into somebody else's world. You know, I I used to say my own little mantra at Fast Company when I was at Fast Company because that was the last time I wrote really big long profiles and um and I there's there's a lot that I I wouldn't trade what I'm doing now but there's a lot that I do miss about that that um that I wanted to deliver for every business story information inspiration and joy and I wouldn't press send until I could at least justify that I had two out of three but that that's the holy grail because you know the the joy of creating and and being in relationship and business and moving forward and making things better not worse you know you and you get to be yourself we weren't talking about belonging and things like that back then but that's that's it you know the dignity of work the dignity of providing for for people and you're making your community better and um doing something worthwhile i mean this is these are the kinds of things that that I'm hoping that we're starting to really talk about again, in a really meaningful way as a as a global community.
0: Yeah, and I think we definitely are, and you are a big part of why we're we're doing that. Uh, I'm so happy that you're doing the work that you're doing is such important work. I'm I'm so happy that you are using the word "I" because it does connect to the reader in such a different way, and we can hear a different story that we otherwise would not hear. And I'm going to speak for the listeners of the best thing podcast and say, you 100% have provided inspiration, (laughs) information and joy uh, in this interview. So I I can't thank you enough uh, for taking time to do this for for people that want to to follow you and see more of you. Where would you like them to go to?
1: Well, please subscribe to race ahead. I need to justify my existence all the time. You can sign up at fortune.com slash. Get Race Ahead. I'm busy on Twitter. It's at Elmagirt, E L L M C G I R T. People are pretty good at finding me wherever I am. And um, I can't wait to share this podcast with more and more people. And it's wonderful to see you. The listeners don't know that we're actually looking at each other on this wonderful um, uh, platform, but you look good. And you actually, I'd forgotten how much we look alike. You really look like my. My very handsome younger brother
0: or cousin. So I, told you, I feel like I feel like, we, I feel like we know I've known you for a long time. It's I always amazing when you connect with someone. You're like, I know you. I never I know met you. you. We well, never talked, but I know you. And through some of the things you've shared, I understand why I know you. Everything that she just mentioned, all the links you'll be able to find in the show notes for this episode. So again, Ellen, thank you so much for, for making time uh, to spend with me here today.
1: Oh, I love you, my brother. You take care and love to your whole family and to everyone out there in the podcast land. I love you too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Nevs. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.